Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... And I felt, it felt, felt I feel right. I was so and I just thought, well... I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week, we're bringing you two stories about genetic bonds. Our first story this week is from Katie Wu. It was recorded in June 2017 at Oberon in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The theme of that night was sweet and sour. For a few months in college, I subsisted almost entirely on cereal. Not out of necessity, but out of obsession. Most nights I would sit down for dinner in my dining hall with three bowls in front of me. For my appetizer, fiber-rich raisin bran, which as far as I was concerned was basically salad, uh, multi-grain Cheerios for my main course, and frosted mini-wheats for dessert. One night after a particularly brutal physics midterm, I staggered into my dining hall with only one thought on my mind, oatmeal squares. <sighs> and so I poured myself some cereal and I headed over to the fridge for my cereal accompaniment of choice, almond milk. That's when disaster struck. The almond milk was empty. Okay, uh, this sucked, but it was going to be okay. I, I would have soy milk, soy milk is great. But of course that was empty too, as was the rice milk and the coconut milk and even impossibly this beanie tasting jar of hemp milk that I could have sworn had been in that fridge since freshman orientation. In fact, the only thing left in the entire milk section was this half-empty carton of skim cow's milk. I was horrified. My life in a series of Kellogg cereal boxes flashed before my eyes. And in that moment, as I was staring at this carton of skim milk, my panicked thoughts started to drift towards my mother. And no, not because of some twisted, milk-driven Freudian impulse thing, but because I'm, I'm lactose intolerant. And I'm not alone here. 
You know, uh, about 75% of the world's population actually can't digest lactose after they're about two years old, around the age of weaning. Um, but even if you can't digest lactose, that doesn't necessarily mean you're lactose intolerant. Only some people have that adverse reaction. And so what can happen is this. If lactose sits undigested in your colon, it can start to draw water into your gut and you get diarrhea. And if you're super lucky, you'll also have certain populations of bacteria in your gut that can ferment that lactose and create a ton of rancid gas and nausea. It's pretty great. So, so science tells us that lactose intolerance is kind of definitely a thing, um, but my mother, my mother believes that lactose intolerance is more a state of mind. Uh, so I'm, I'm my mother's only child, uh, and I, I grew up way too fast for her liking. Every developmental milestone from my first bite of solid food to my first successful parallel park was a traumatic event for her. And she desperately resisted my independence. To her, me growing up was me growing away. The day I left for college, she sat me down and started talking to me about her friend's son. We'll call him Alan. And she said, Alan is such a good boy. When he moved out, he cried for two weeks. <laughs> and now he calls his mother every day. Twice. <laughs> I resisted the urge to ask her if this kid still drank directly from his mother's breast or if she shipped the milk out to him on cold packs. So growing up, I was just so embarrassed every time someone commented on how much I, I looked or acted like my mother, but she ate that shit up. One day when I was nine, she came home carrying these two massive, hideous, matching pink dresses for us to wear to a wedding. In an attempt to reason with her, I hid in the closet in my underwear, plugged my ears and screamed bloody murder until she let me put on different clothes. <sighs> uh, as hard as she fought to keep me close, I fought twice as hard to run away. Though in, in her ideal world, I'm pretty sure I would still be on the other end of a 25-year-old umbilical cord. So maybe it's not shocking that my mom doesn't drink the uh, dairy-free Kool-Aid. Um, to her, lactose intolerance is a figment of the imagination or a millennial myth, you know, like, a, like, like depression or a liberal arts education <laughs> or a... Uh, interracial marriage. Um, she has this really bad history of, you know, sneaking cream into my coffee and wedging cheese into my sandwiches. And uh, she likes to tell me that all the, all the pain and discomfort and bloating and nausea I experienced during the, these events is all in my head. So anyway, I, I'm standing here in this barren wasteland where non-dairy milk goes to die, confronted with this impossible choice. And 
I, I, I know that the reasonable thing to do is just to find something else to eat. But had I been looking forward to my oatmeal squares all day, and at this point, to go without them is a fate worse than death. I'm locked in this staring contest with this half-empty carton of skim milk, and all of a sudden, I'm Alice down the rabbit hole, and the milk in front of me is saying, drink me. <sighs> and maybe it's, it's my stomach talking, but I start to wonder if my mother is, for once, actually right, and it, it is all in my head, you know? Because I, I haven't had dairy in, in like 11 years, and it is technically possible for lactose intolerance to wax and wane. I look down at my oatmeal squares, and in that moment I decide to fight, to be brave. I will not go gentle into that good night. And I crack open the carton of skim milk. Uh, 20 minutes later, it is no longer all in my head. Instead, it is all over my clothes, all over my floor, and all over the second floor women's restroom. In that moment, I have two thoughts. <laughs> My first is that whoever first looked at a cow considered its leaky, drooping udders and thought it was the right decision to suck the liquid from its fleshy pink undersides had to have been the biggest idiot in the entire world. <laughs> My second is of nauseated vindication. <laughs> Uh, nothing has changed. I'm still pretty damn lactose intolerant. If anything, the years off dairy has made my body more sensitive to it, and it's, it's punishing me for breaking fast. Here's, here's the frustrating thing. My mother could have watched this entire ordeal unfold, and she still probably wouldn't have believed me. All this in spite of the fact that as someone who grudgingly cohabitated with her for 18 years, I can tell you that she and I both know that she too gets a little tooty after ice cream. <laughs> That's the thing. Biology tells us that we're all a little more our mothers than our fathers. We exist inside our mother's bodies, emerge into the world through our mothers, even get our first gut microbes from our mothers, the same microbes that can go on to determine whether or not we put cream cheese on our bagels. What's more, there's actually some DNA that we only get from our mothers. Most of our DNA is in the nucleus, that's where our chromosomes are, but there's also some in the mitochondria, which you may remember from middle school biology as the powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> Paternal mitochondrial DNA is lost during fertilization, so the inheritance of this stuff is entirely matrilineal. In reality, mitochondrial DNA is just like 0.1% of our genetic code. It's actually kind of surprising this stuff is still around at all, because it's a lot of work for the cell to maintain two separate sets of DNA. Mitochondrial DNA should have been lost to the ether long ago. Nevertheless, she persisted. 
mitochondrial DNA is still passed on, stable and intact, generation to generation, mother to child. In my quest to break free of my mother, I lost sight of who she really was. The same woman who had scoffed at my gastrointestinal distress and denied me the luxury of a bra through the end of middle school. It was the same woman who indulged my voracious love for reading and bought me every book I could have ever wanted. The same woman who, knowing I don't have a lot of time to shop for groceries, once tried to ship me a pound of grapes in a FedEx envelope. <laughs> who drove in socks and flip-flops six hours just to have dinner with me the night of my college graduation. Who, on nights when I woke up screaming, would crawl into bed with me and let me curl up on her chest and when I grew too big to fit there with my head resting on the left side of her body so I could just hear the sound of her beating heart. It was the closest thing I ever had to a lullaby. <sighs> my mother, fueled by her often misguided but always unconditional love, is an inextricable part of me. And when I remember this, I don't have to look far to see her in myself. I have her stocky build. I have her lopsided smile. I have her lactose intolerance, for better or for worse. I have her pride, though. I know sometimes she wishes I would give that one back. In every cell in my body, there is a small, unfathomable piece that is entirely my mother, stubborn, unbroken, eternal. Thank you. That was Katie Wu. Katie is a graduate student at Harvard University. Currently, she is studying how bacteria handle stressful situations so that she can someday learn to do the same. Outside of the lab, she is co-director of Harvard Science in the News, a graduate student publication that trains aspiring scientists to better communicate with the general public. Additionally, she designs and teaches health science and leadership curriculum for HPREP, an outreach program for underserved and minority high school students from the greater Boston area. Our second story today is from Oliver Vickblatt. It was recorded in March 2017 at Union Hall in Brooklyn. The theme of that night was brain awareness. I'd like to dedicate this story to my uh, grandfather, Alf, actually. He um, passed away a few, a few months ago. So in my research as a... Um, as a PhD student in neuroscience, I investigate how memories from the past influences your uh, decisions. And that's something I thought a lot about. And still, when people used to ask me if I became a neuroscientist, if I got into neuroscience because of my sister, the answer was clear, no. But after what happened, after these, after this series of very 
improbable events where everything somehow came full circle, I'm, I'm just not that certain any longer. If I'm sure of anything, though, it's that sometimes a single event can change everything. In the case of my family, this event was tiny. I mean, it was minuscule. It, it, it was literally so small that it couldn't be perceived with a naked human eye. It occurred at the microscopic scale of a single molecule. And it happened with a probability so slim that it approached nothing. And still, the effects of this one single random event still echo today in the life of my family and I. Of course, we didn't know this at the time. It was 2012 and I was home on the southern coast of Sweden and I was about to begin um, my PhD studies in New York. One day around this time, as my grandfather Alp, he was filling up the food basket at a local supermarket, he, he spots my sister across the store. And weirdly enough, she's sitting in a, in a wheelchair. I mean, so the, my sister, she has limited uh, mobility, sure, but she's never been in a wheelchair, so he's, he's confused. But the thing about my grandfather was that he was just the most kind of affable, kind of um, almost pathologically cheerful person you could possibly imagine. So he just, he just goes for it. He just approaches there, uh, and he just goes in for the hug, right? And so he bends down, and he's just a few inches from my sister's face when suddenly he recoils in shock. It's, something's terribly wrong. This is, this is not my sister. This is, this is not Vera. Instead, it's some other girl who looks almost identical to her. I mean, this girl and my sister looks like siblings no less than me and my sister does. I mean, people have always said that me and my sister, we, we, we look a lot alike. And when we were kids, we, we spent a lot of time together. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, yeah, we did many things. I mean, she used to go absolutely crazy when I, uh, you know, I pretended I would, uh, I would bite her feet like that just drove her crazy with laughter. And I don't know how many hours we, we spent together, um, you know, in, in the backseat of the family Volvo, you know, holding hands while listening to, to music. The thing about Vera is that when she's in a good mood, I mean, she's, she's just incredible to be with. And, and anyone who's met her will attest to that. I mean, uh, I don't know. Somehow she just always seems to find a way into to, to people's, people's heart, regardless of, of who it is. And... I mean, she, love, she loves life. She loves to do many things. She loves to go swimming. Uh, she loves to go horseback riding. Um, she loves to dance to cheesy music. But unfortunately, she's dependent on other people to do most of those things. In fact, she's uh, dependent on other people to do almost anything. I mean, especially when she was small. I mean, she couldn't be... She couldn't be left alone for more than, you know, not even a single minute. And I don't think she was older. I mean, she, she, was, she was probably five years old the first time she could ever be left alone in her room. 
Uh, and it was all thanks to this this uh, VHS tape we had uh, that contained a recording of, of a local circus. There was something about that kind of manic music, the colors and the acrobats that really kind of um, captured her her attention. And I I remember I remember the day that that tape broke very clearly because I came I came home from school to find my mother in, in tears in the kitchen with mascara running down her cheeks. Uh, she was she was scared because before that tape and the moments of reprieve that it offered our family, um, you know, Vera's condition had often brought my parents to to the edge of exhaustion. Um, I, I actually, I even remember my dad calling the, you know, TV network and production company to try and get a copy of, of, of the tape. And I, I don't think they got one in the end, but instead my parents just bought this huge collection of circus tape that were kind of played on a, on a rotating schedule in our house. Uh, so when you walk past the room, a lot of the time you'd hear this kind of like weird upbeat polka music. Um, <laughs> I think it's fair to say that uh, if, if my family had a soundtrack, then uh, circus music was certainly on that playlist. I don't know, to some of you, the idea of, of crying uh, over a broken VHS tape may sound ridiculous. But if you've ever cared for a child with a disability, I think you know um, how incredibly difficult it can it can be sometimes. And in all fairness, it wasn't you know it wasn't for me that it was very painful. And I think that's mostly because I think my parents did a lot for, to shield me from from the most burdensome aspects. And besides, you know. Vera, she was the only sibling I'd ever had. I didn't know anything else. She was my, you know, my baby sister. She was three years younger than me. And it wasn't really until many years later, when I was older, that I started to realize the uniqueness of my experience. For my, for my parents, however, you know, the arrival of, of my sister and the realization that something was wrong had meant no small... It was a readjustment of expectations. One of the hardest things for our family, I think, is that uh, we had never really found out what was wrong with her. Uh, you know, the, the doctors, they had theories. Um, one was that something had happened at birth, that there was some um, lack of oxygen and that her brain had been damaged because of it. Uh, others say it was some sort of rare cause of autism, but ultimately nothing was substantiated. Um, and I think when the doctors, um, you know, couldn't provide any answer, my parents started looking for someone who did, perhaps desperate, desperately. And we, well, my parents and I often, we would go around the country to these different experts. I mean, herbal therapists and speech therapists and osteopaths and chiropractors and even some kooky homeopaths, you know. Uh, and I'm not going to say that none of that worked, um, but if it did, it didn't change anything fundamental. Uh, and, you know, time passed, 
And, you know, after years of worrying and wondering and wrestling to find some answers or maybe some solutions, you know, I think that acceptance finally arrived in our house, you know. We found ways to manage and it actually got easier. It did get better. But the cause of my sister's mysterious illness remained unknown until that day in a local supermarket when my dad bends down to hug what he thinks is my sister. So it turned out that the woman driving the wheelchair was the girl's mother. And when my grandfather explained his misunderstanding to her, uh, she told him that her daughter had very recently been diagnosed with um, a rare developmental disorder, a genetic disorder that had only been identified five years earlier. The name of it was Pitt-Hopkins syndrome. Just to give you some perspective, there are 20,000 genes in the human genome. Pitt-Hopkins syndrome comes about from a mutation for one, from one out of those 20,000 genes. That's it. It's called a random mutation. It doesn't really have any known causes, right? And this mutation is rare, exceedingly rare. At the time, this girl that my grandfather um, met, she was... Uh, one of 200 children in the world, and it's only a few hundred more now, right? And what you can learn from studying these children was that the TCF4 gene was absolutely necessary um, for the brain to develop in the way it was supposed to. And if it was damaged, as it was in these children, um, what followed was developmental delay, lack of speech, and distinct facial features. In other words, it sounded a lot like my sister. My sister had Pitt-Hopkins syndrome. By the time we got the results, I had actually already begun my PhD at NYU and I was sitting in my office in Washington Square and I, I remember getting this email very vividly. It was, it was an amazing feeling. I mean, we had, or really my grandfather had just accidentally stumbled on what had been our life's defining mystery. This thing that had been around for so long now had a name and it had a, and it had a cause. So in this email, my, my mother had attached a link to um, a newly founded foundation, the Pitt Hopkins Research Foundation. It had been founded by um, parents of some of these children, and, and the, the, the goal of this organization was to raise money and fund research into the, the disorder and possible treatments. And I was sitting there, and I, I began reading about their work, which today, incredibly, and thanks, I mean, largely to these, these parents who've spent so much time doing this, this has today blo blossomed into what's really a burgeoning research field. I mean, we're actually starting to understand this disorder. The blanks are being filled in as we speak. And what's, what's still unknown is whether a treatment is possible and how long that would take to develop. But what's certain is that there is now hope where none was before.
And by that, I'm not implying that by hope, but that hope is in any way uncomplicated because I think you can derive strength both from acceptance and from hope. And I think anyone who finds himself in this kind of situation will discover that struggle between, on one hand, acceptance of the situation that you're in, and on the other hand, hope that things will someday change, you know? And they'll discover the difficulty of finding a balance between those two things that make sense in a situation that sometimes just seems crazy and impossible, you know? But regardless, regardless of all that, because of biomedical science, you know, these parents of these children don't have to be left in the darkness any longer like my parents were, you know? Like, it's not going to be, it's not going to be easy. It never is, but at least they won't be alone. So I was, so I was sitting there in my office reading this email for the very first time. And eventually I come across the Scientific Advisory Committee. These are three scientists um, charged with deciding where the funds go in this foundation. And I look at the list and I, I just had to look again. I absolutely couldn't believe it. At the very top of that list was Professor Eric Klan at NYU. I knew him. In fact, he was sitting in the building I was in at that very moment. Somehow, I had ended up thousands of miles from home, three floors down from a person charged with figuring out my sister's condition. And so today, when people ask me, did I go into neuroscience because of my sister, I say, Maybe. Not because it was ever explicitly or consciously about her. Um, it wasn't about, you know, studying her or making her better. But the way that everything somehow folded back on itself, the way that things came full circle, it's very difficult for me to believe that my experiences with her didn't influence my decisions. I don't think I would be here if it weren't for that one single event that occurred at the microscopic scale of a single molecule. Sometimes a single event does change everything. Thank you. That was Oliver Wickblatt. Originally from Sweden, Oliver is a fifth-year PhD candidate at New York University's Center for Neuroscience. His thesis work explores how the human brain uses memories from the past to make decisions about the future. Outside of his research, Oliver has written book and theater reviews for Science Magazine and been part of creating a virtual reality experience about how the brain represents space. If you enjoyed today's story or fan of the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon.com. If you sign up to donate $100 or more a month, we don't know what we'll do because that's amazing. We will email you and set something up. Or you could donate $10 a month or $5 a month or $1 a month. It all helps. Thank you. The Story Collider is also grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Company Fox Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider's... Do- 
The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and Aaron Barker with help from our many vendors and volunteers. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Christine Gentry, Ari Daniel, Nissa Greenberg, and Aaron Barker. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Oberon and Union Hall for hosting these shows, and to DNA for, you know, being the building blocks of life and yada yada. Good stuff. Thanks for listening. <laughs>